Good morning. It's great to see you here. I'd love to add my welcome to days. My name is Rick. If we haven't met before, uh, it's a pleasure to have you along with us here this morning. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if you could have it open at Psalm 22. If you don't have one, there is a whole bunch just out in the foyer. I won't look if you sneak back out and grab one or if you want to bring it up on your phones. It really will be helpful as we as we look at this together because I'm going to be pointing us to different parts of that psalm as we look through it together. Let's pray though, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that You are not a God who is silent, but that you have spoken to us and that you know what life is like in our world. And so your world, your your word speaks to us in ways that uh, resonate with us uh, of what it is to live in this world that you have made and what it is to live with you as our God. And we pray that that will be the case for us this morning, that we will um, uh, understand that you know us as we read this and that it will cause us to draw all the more close, closely to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's such a devastating cry, isn't it, those words? A cry of anguish and abandonment. And if we are at all familiar with the Easter story, and if we've read the the account of Jesus' death on the cross, then these words will be most familiar to us, I'm sure, as the words that Jesus cried when he was hanging, dying on the cross. These were his exact words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they are devastating words, aren't they? I was, I was having a chat with a guy a number of years ago now who was talking about these words that Jesus cried on the cross. And he saw those words, he heard those words as a, lack of, as a loss of Jesus' faith in the final moments of his life. You know, if Jesus, he said, has such perfect faith in God, if he willingly went to the cross, then why this apparent loss of faith right in those final moments of his life? as if all the way through those moments of leading up to the cross and hanging on the cross, he was expecting that God would send some last-minute rescue for him, that he would have that army of angels that would come somehow and save him, take him down from the cross. But now it's as if he's finally realised that as he's breathing his last breaths, that help is not coming. For that man that I was, I was speaking to, Jesus' dying cry was evidence, or at least a big question mark, over Jesus' trust in God. And, and, whether, and whether his death, Jesus' death, was just some terrible mistake. This is not how it was meant to be for Jesus. That this is not what Jesus was expecting would happen. He had, had God forsaken Jesus... In that final moment, is that what his cry is saying, or at least feeling? Well, there's clearly more to it going on than that, because as we've just heard, Jesus wasn't just expressing his own personal anguish in that moment, he was quoting this psalm for us. And not just the opening verse, the the whole thing, really. In fact, if we are somewhat familiar with the account of Jesus' death, you you could almost play bingo with all the references in Psalm 22 that match up with what actually happened 
at Jesus' death. Did you notice that as it, as it was being read? So many things that are fulfilled in the death of Jesus, how this is a, a prophecy about Jesus' experience. And so our temptation as we read this psalm might be just to jump straight to Jesus and how remarkable it is that this psalm predicts the death of Jesus so accurately a thousand years before it happened. But the best way to read the Psalms is not simply as this kind of prophetic code book to kind of match this thing with what happened in Jesus' life. Instead, what we want to do is see what this Psalm originally meant in its original context and then see how this Psalm is fulfilled more completely in Jesus and why it was that Jesus chose to use his final breaths by pointing us to this psalm. That why he would want to draw our attention to this psalm, not just the first line, but the whole thing. That there was actually something purposeful in those words of Jesus on the cross. That he wanted to see that moment in his life in light of this psalm. And so let's have a look at what this psalm is actually talking about. And what we're going to see is that this psalm is, in fact, about the faithful sufferer, the one who trusts in God in the midst of suffering. So let's have a look at it again now, beginning from the first few verses. And and again, with that awful, God-forsaken cry, let me read verses 1 and 2 again for us now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. It really is a devastating cry, isn't it? Of of abandonment and pain. And you can see here and throughout the psalm just how much pain and anguish the writer of this psalm is in, right? But but more than the physical pain that he's experiencing, do you notice that his overwhelming distress is the feeling that he's been abandoned by God in this most awful of moments? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I cry out to you, but you do not answer. Devastating. See, his pain and his distress is made all the worse by his feeling that God has abandoned him in this very worst of moments. His cry for help seems to be falling on deaf ears. It's like his cry just echoes off into the distance. You can imagine it, help me, help me, help me, help me, and then nothing. And so his pain feels all the worse because God is not answering him. And I wonder maybe if you know that experience. Not only going through something extremely difficult, but also feeling like God is not answering your cries for help. That God doesn't feel like he's there with you. Your prayers just seem to kind of bounce off the ceiling with no one hearing and no one helping. Have you ever had that experience? I wonder what what is it that we should do in those moments? What does David, who wrote this psalm, do in this situation? Have a look at the next verses. He reminds himself of God's faithfulness in the past. Let me read from verse 4 now. 
In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cry out, cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You see what David is doing there? He's reminding himself that God has always been faithful in the past. He has always answered prayers in the past. He's always saved those who cry out to him. They trusted, he says, and were not put to shame. Their trust was vindicated because God saved them. This cry of abandonment is not a loss of faith. It's the cry of the faithful afflicted, the faithful sufferer. It's the cry of someone who trusts God when bad things happen. And this is the right reaction in those kind of situations, to remind ourselves of the ways that God has been faithful in the past. But here's the thing, and I think this is really quite crucial, and that is that reminding himself of God's faithfulness in the past is not a silver bullet solution to his problem that he's experiencing right now. And you see in the next verses from verse 6, this awful disconnect between his faith, what he knows about God, and his experience right now, between what he trusts about God, between what he just reminded himself of God's faithfulness in the past, what he knows about God, and his own current experience. He's, He's just feeling this disconnect between those things. He knows that God has always been faithful in the past, and he's just reminded himself of that, and so he should, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening for him right now. Let me read now from verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. You see this awful disconnect that's going on here. God has always been faithful to those who have trusted him. God has always delivered, always saved when they cried out to him. But not for me. Not now. It seems that I'm not even human, he says. I'm the lowest creature imaginable. I am a worm and not a man. And again, his situation is made that much worse because the people around him are mocking him for his, his faith in God who is not saving him. You know, he trusts in the, you trust in the Lord? Where is your God now? He's not saving you. They're adding insult to injury, pouring salt on the wound, pointing to the very thing that is causing such distress. His faith in God seems to be futile. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. And that's exactly right. He does trust the Lord. You see from verse 9, ever since the day of his birth, he has known complete dependence on God and God has trusted him. And now he's being mocked for that very trust. You say you're on God's side. Well, God is clearly not on your side. And that makes his suffering just feel that much worse. You know, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the atheist has no real reason to complain about suffering. It's just what is. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. 
Sure, they may not like it, but they've got no reason to cry out against it. Suffering is no better or worse than pleasure. It's just a thing. But of course, no one actually believes that, do they? Most people treat suffering as if it has a moral character to it. It is wrong. We, We know that. We instinctively feel the wrongness of that's why we cry out against it and in fact atheists use the wrongness of suffering that we instinctively know to deny the god that they don't believe exists but they're stuck in this impossible loop as they do that because without god suffering means nothing it's just another thing that happens to be happening right now but we know that's not true And the faithful sufferer has every reason to cry out against suffering and to cry out to God in their suffering. And and these mockers here are pouring salt on the wounds because it seems like God is not listening. And so he says in verse 11, Don't be far from me, God. Trouble is near. Don't be far, God. There is something right in someone who trusts God, feeling the wrongness of suffering and crying out to God God for help. And I hope you know that when you're experiencing that kind of suffering. There is something right in feeling the wrongness of it. And in verses 12 to 21, the next verses, we see a bit more of the nature of this suffering that he's experiencing. He's surrounded by enemies like a pack of wild animals. Verse 12 Many bulls surround me. Verse 13, roaring lions that tear at their prey open their mouths wide against me. Verse 16, dogs surround me. He calls them bulls, lions, dogs, even horns of wild oxen. But those are clearly metaphors. It's not animals, actually, that are the problem. It's people, it's humans. Verse 16, a pack of villains surround me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This psalm really highlights, I think, for us the the depravity of human evil and the terrible things that we do against each other and the reasons why we turn against each other. You see here the the crowd mentality, ganging up on others. At the death of Jesus, we see that, don't we? How fickle the crowd was when people turned against him, everyone piled on. No one was with him in those last moments. Everyone was against him. The way that people delight in the downfall of people who make claims about themselves because it makes me feel better about myself. You know, He claimed to be on God's side. He claimed to be one of God's people. Well, where is his God now? That's why they mocked Jesus on the cross. Or seeking to gain from the loss of others. They cast lots for his clothes before he was even dead. Verse 18. But death is certainly where this psalm seems to be heading, in verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. And yet even with his last breaths, he continues to cry out to the God he knows can save him. And I want to just pause there for a moment to notice this fact that even in this most raw and anguished cry to God, even in his feeling of abandonment and pain, 
Even when he feels like God is far from him, when he wants God to be near, when trouble is near, in all of that, he still cries out to God as my God. Did you notice that right throughout the psalm? Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 2, my God, I cry out by day. Verse 10, you have always been my God. Verse 19, you are my strength. And even just the fact that he is addressing his cry in this awful situation to God. You, 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 he says. This is not a loss of faith. It's the cry of the faithful in suffering, the faithful in affliction. Because the alternative is to curse God or to turn away from God, to ignore God, to reject him, to not cry to him at all. That's what unbelief looks like. That's what faithlessness looks like. Rejecting God, ignoring him, cursing him. This psalm is the response of a faithful sufferer. So let me ask you, do you know God as your God? Even in those most terrible moments, is he someone that you can cry out to as my God? Because that's what the faithful sufferer does even in the most raw moments of anguish and pain. And that's what God wants you to do in those moments. He doesn't want you to kind of pull yourself together and pretend that everything's okay. He doesn't want you to put on a happy face and, and you know, stiff up a lip and pretend that it's all right. He wants you to come to him because he is your God, that he is your strength, that he is your hope, even when... Things feel hopeless. And even when he seems far away, that he's the one you cry to because he is your God. This is the cry of the faithful sufferer. And this is a cry that Jesus has experienced in its very deepest depths. See, Jesus knows what it's like what we experience to feel that disconnect between trust in God and my present experience. He has walked in our shoes and then some. When we experience the the feeling of God forsaken us in those moments when God doesn't answer our prayers in the ways that we want him to, when he doesn't save us in those ways that we want him to or in the timing that we want him to. But when Jesus was on the cross, he tasted that God forsakenness to its very end in death. In that sense, Jesus did experience being God forsaken. God didn't come near to help him. Instead, God came near in judgment, the judgment that we deserve. And so his words, Jesus' words, are like a little window into the supernatural suffering that Jesus was was experiencing, the suffering that he willingly took in our place. God was not near to help him. But he was not near to help Jesus so that he can be near to help us. Because Jesus took the penalty that we deserve that separates us from God. That was God forsaken Jesus on the cross. But that's not the end of the story for Jesus or in this psalm. Did you notice that in verse 22 to 24, there is a significant 
turning point in the psalm because God has answered his prayer. Let me read from verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Did you hear that? God has not abandoned him. God did not hide his face from him. God has listened to his cry for help. In the thick of his suffering, the writer of this psalm, and perhaps for us as well, that seemed anything but true. It seemed like God was far from him. It seemed like his cry was falling on deaf ears, but it wasn't. And now he knows that all the more deeply and personally for himself. And so the story of God's faithfulness in the past that the psalmist was reminding himself of early on, now is the story of God's faithfulness in his own life. And it fills him with such joy and thankfulness. And it makes him want to praise God all the more. And not just for him to praise God himself. Did you notice that he kind of wants others to join him in praising God? He wants, he wants people around him to join him. Starting with God's people, verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Those who seek the Lord, verse 26, will praise him. That's the gathering of God's people and he's urging them to to praise God along with him in in the temple, in the synagogue, praising God. But then in verse 27, he goes even further than that. Have a look at what he says there. He wants the ends of the earth to praise him. All the ends of the earth will remember that is that God has saved me and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. You hear what he's saying there? He's saying the entire world should praise God because he has saved me. And when good things happen, we should want to thank God. We should want to praise God. And we should want also the people around us to to join us in thanking and praising God too, shouldn't we? We've just had uh, a a couple of babies born among us. And so we want to thank God for that. Charlotte Kopak and Ellie McGregor both been born in the last week or so. And so we should want to thank God and celebrate along with Kyle and Sam and with Megan and Isaac. It's great news. And so we thank God for that and we praise God for that. We should do that when God does great things and when he answers prayers. When, and also when God answers in difficult times and, and saves from distress. We should want to praise him for that too. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine had a, had a, a cycling accident and he was in a coma. And it all happened very quickly, as you can imagine, and um, urgent calls and messages went out amongst our friends to pray earnestly for my friend, and we did. And to cut a long story short, God answered that prayer in a miraculous way and he came out of that coma and made a full recovery. And so, of course, we wanted to thank and praise God for that. That's what him and his friends and family were doing. But that praise of God for my friend's recovery is not exactly ringing around the world. I'm pretty sure there's no one in Bangladesh who is also joining us in praising God for 
saving my friend. And as much as little Charlotte and little Ellie are the apple of their parents' eye and such a source of joy and praise for them and their family and friends, I'd be surprised if there's anyone in South Sudan who is joining us in praising and thanking God for the births of those children. Praise should be the natural response for when God answers prayers and when God saves, when he provides, when he gives. But the sheer magnitude in this psalm of the, of the salvation here in saving this afflicted sufferer, it's extreme that all the world should praise God because of this salvation. Who could this possibly be talking about? That God saving him would result in praise around the world. And not just around the world, but even in future generations, verse 30. People yet unborn will praise God. In fact, even the dead, verse 29, will worship God because he has saved this one man. Who could this possibly be talking about? That God saving him from death matters so much that the entire world and throughout history should praise God because of it. Well, we know, don't we? Because Jesus told us with his dying breaths. He pointed us to this exact psalm and not just those opening words, but the whole thing. Jesus is the ultimate faithful sufferer who cried out to God, even in the deepest pit of suffering. And God answered his prayer and saved him, not just from death, but out of death, when he raised him to life again. And in doing so, he destroyed the power of death. And so that salvation is not just for him, but for everyone who follows him. And so, of course, we praise him. And that is the faithfulness of God that we can look back to now and we can remind ourselves of and trust in when we are in moments of deep, dark suffering, when God seems far away and when it seems like he's not answering our prayers. We can know that God is not far away, that God is hearing us and that we can trust in him even in our suffering because he did not abandon Jesus even in the grave. He did not finally forsake him. And that results in praise to God around the world and throughout generations. And so here we are on the other side of the world, 60 generations after, and we are praising God for this great salvation. And even death cannot stop that praise. That's the faithful sufferer who suffered for our sake and we should praise God because of it. Let's pray and praise him now. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you that you did not abandon your son Jesus in the grave but that you raised him to life again, that you heard his cry, his pleas and you raised him to life and that that was a salvation not just for him but for all who follow him, for a new mankind that he now stands at the head of. And Father, we ask that you will help us in our moments of deep, dark anguish and pain whenever they come to look to Jesus, to look to your faithfulness that you have demonstrated in Jesus, that we will know that you are not a God who is far, but a God who is near, 
and a God who is always with us, even in those moments, and that nothing, even death, cannot keep you from us. And we pray, pray and praise you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.